Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Well, welcome. It is a blustery, cold Tuesday edition of The Ride Home. We are very happy that you're with us. We are bundled up in the studio. (laughs) It's the wind that does it. With the wind, uh, uh, when I came into work this afternoon, uh, 10 degrees. Yeah, it feels really good. This is as cold as it's been probably when? Since February, maybe? Maybe. It's really, really cold out there. <laughs> It'll wake you up. Yeah. Now, I, you know, I love walking. Yeah. Not like this. Mm-mm, no, no. Not interested. Me too. I've been really strong walking yeah. myself. I'm not going out. No. I saw somebody walking their dogs today. They were all bundled up. The dogs were wearing coats. Which I also have a kind of, how do you feel about a dog in a coat? Well, I mean, as someone who doesn't own a dog, I think it's very amusing to look at. It is amusing. I've never had a coat for my dog, but I understand, you know, okay, some dogs, little skinny things, they need a little help. Mm -hmm. I was watching the uh, dog show, you know, that was... Uh, aired on Thanksgiving Day. Oh, yeah, sure. I recorded it because I was too busy cooking, and I wanted to focus. <laughs> so I watched it last night. The sweetest. They're so adorable. But there was this one hairless dog that if he's out in the sun, you have to put sunscreen on him. Wasn't he beautiful? Wasn't he go- and silky, Big. shiny? Yes. What a beautiful like animal. Like a Doberman yeah. almost, right? Those yes. pointy ears. Yes. But the coat was so beautiful. So, so be- But the- it's not a coat. Mm-mm. No, it's just the skin. Yeah. Imagine putting sunscreen on your dog. I don't know. But when you look at all those dogs, every, of course, those dogs are uber pampered dogs. Oh, completely. They're the peak of the peak of yes. dogs. But any dog. A Aren't dog, they adorable? Oh, my God. Did you see the one dog that was the service dog of the the person who was showing him? No. She just finished a tour of duty with the Marines, I think. And uh, she trained him to be a uh, to be like her support animal hmm. when she was overseas. And now they're both back. And now she's she shows him. Dog. Yeah. And it's fabulous. I love it so much. I really I just yeah. so excellent. Uh, has there ever been a service cat? I wonder. They expect to be served. <laughs> yeah, it's the opposite yeah. way, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. Right. I, I do follow a cat on Instagram who uh, doesn't have any use of his rear legs mm. because of an injury. And so he is a service cat. He goes into, his owner takes him into nursing homes. Oh, yeah. And he just lays and purrs on people. Oh. And it's adorable. Fabulous. It's truly adorable. Excellent. Well, if you got a pet... <laughs> God bless them all. Right? Exactly, and just be thankful burr, they have burr, that. Burr. They have that incredible coat on. They sure do. Keeps them cool in winter and warm in, or cool in summer and warm in winter. Well, we've got a show for you today. We think. Yeah, it's why a very are we talking show. about dogs? Uh, I just it just came up because I was wanted to take a dog for a walk oh, and then right. dog coats and then the international dog yeah, show. Whatever. Okay. Purina, yeah. Blah blah. Coming yeah, up too. on today's program, Jay Slocum in the five o'clock hey, hour. Jay. How to have a civil conversation in a world full of antagonism. Also coming up in this hour, our good friend Dr. Hugh. Ross, astrophysicist and author, also senior scholar and founder of Reasons to Believe. We'll talk about Big Bang cosmology. Uh, what is the James Webb Telescope revealed? Uh, what's the latest there? We're going to talk to Hugh about that. And um, the training wheels are going to come off in just a couple of minutes with Michelle Van Loon. Very nice. All right. That's ahead for the uh, 4 o'clock and 5 o'clock edition mm-hmm. of The Ride Home. But before we uh, venture there, Kath always gives us the top news stories of the day. So, Kath, please, the top four at four. 
Tuesday, November 28th, 2023, number one. The temporary ceasefire between Israel and Hamas, John, in the Gaza Strip continues today after being extended for two additional days to allow for the release of more hostages by Hamas and more Palestinian prisoners to be freed by Israel. Israeli officials said they had approved a new list of Palestinian prisoners to be freed if Hamas makes good on its promise to release more hostages. And Israel also had a list of names from Hamas of the hostages it plans to release later today. Hmm. About 170 people still are captive in Gaza, but not all apparently are held by Hamas. I'm not sure what that means. Who are the other ones held by hmm. if they're not held by Hamas? Not good people. U.S. officials have said they're continuing to work for further extensions in the truce and that they'll keep pushing the negotiations until all are released. Read more about that at today's cbsnews.com. Number two, the political and policy network led by billionaire Charles Koch is backing the Republican presidential bid of Nikki Haley. The latest sign that some big donors are moving her way in a long shot bid to block former President Donald Trump from winning the GOP nomination. That's according to today's Wall Street Journal. As the Republican presidential primary field is narrowing, uh, Nikki Haley's rising in the polls, John, but there are still questions about whether she has the campaign infrastructure to take advantage of her momentum. But this choice by uh, Charles Koch is definitely going to help her along her path. Big money, big influence. Yep. The Koch network did not support Trump in his first White House bid in 2016. The two sides have clashed over his opposition to his conservative beliefs on government spending and free trade and his welcoming stance on immigration. Trump responded in a way that you would expect with insults directed at both people. In recent weeks, Haley has also won the backing of high-profile donors on Wall Street, including billionaire Ken Griffin, who founded Citadel. And his involvement could be significant because he has a history of sending seven or eight-figure checks to candidates and groups he backs. Iowa poll, Haley and DeSantis tied at 16, Trump at 43. Number three, the wife of Ukraine's intelligence chief, John, did you read about this? Diagnosed with heavy metals poisoning? Yes. Undergoing treatment in a hospital, a spokesperson for the agency said today, as the war with Russia stretched into its 22nd month. Mariana Budinova is the wife of Lieutenant General Kirily Budinov, the head of the military intelligence agency that is known in Ukraine as GUR. Her condition was affirmed by the AP. Uh, no more details about the alleged poisoning or who who could have been behind it. But earlier this year, it was revealed that military intelligence chief Budinov had survived 10, count them 10, assassination attempts carried out by the Russian State Security Service, FSB. And number four, snowfall lagging behind the average so far for us in western Pennsylvania this year. On average, our region tallies about two inches of snow by this point. Last year, we saw three and a half inches of snow by this date. But so far this year, only three-tenths of an inch. And that's your top four at four. Surprising to come downstairs and see the snow this morning, wasn't it? Well, it, was, it wasn't really. Was it, it was tiny bits. Yeah. Um, I mean, throughout the day, there's been, uh, I would say, mini squalls, right? High forecast will be in the 40s by Friday. Monday, the high temp will likely reach the low 50s 
Mm-hmm. From December through February, according to the National Weather Service, John, it's estimated about a 40% chance for above normal temperatures. Good. So projected forecasts for winter are... Warmer war- than usual. Yeah, very nice. Yeah. I'll take it, right? Yeah. Uh, unclear when the region may see its first snowfall, according to today's trip, but not in the immediate future. Okay. I want to do a ride-home poll on that. Maybe. Uh, a little oh. contest. <laughs> when is the... We did that in the... We used to do that as, as a family when the kids were little. Yeah. Well, we always did the, uh, on our show also the last... When, when the when the snow would be melting away, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should do the first snow. Do you think we should do a poll? Yeah, why Let's not? come up with an idea for a poll. Okay, we'll put it on Facebook. Okay. Really, we will. We need to take a break. When we come back, Michelle Van Loon, the training wheels are coming off. Nice. What does it mean? Find out next. It's the Tuesday edition. It's the ride home. In the early days of your faith journey. You were one thing, right? Hey, surprised, excited, overwhelmed, all these different Curious. things. Yes. Right, ready to How read a new work? thing, see a new thing. Right. You're dipping your toe. But then at some point, whether it's six months or six years... Our next guest says the training wheels come off. Michelle Van Loon is with us. She's been a regular guest of our show over the many years, author of six books, including her most recent, Translating Your Past, Finding Meaning in Family Ancestry, Genetic Clues, and Generational Trauma. Michelle, welcome back. Hey, you guys. It's good to be with you. Michelle, the three of us have been uh, a part of the Christian community for long enough that we have seen a lot of the kind of quick fix programmatic mentality or approach when it comes to spiritual growth. Like, hey, want to settle the question of where you're going to spend eternity? Just pray this short prayer or, you know, fill out this fill in the blank sheet and you're going to go from zero to 10 in your spiritual life in the next 30 days. Or it's kind of like the things you see on Instagram about fitness, right? Except for the last few decades, I think they've been, or at least many of them, have been concentrated in the like the spiritual formation or growth sector. Sector. It's true that that's a really, really good um, and appropriate connection. I think, like we we love the predictable certain result kind of focus of things. I mean, we're Americans. We put stuff in the microwave. We press a button. Suddenly we have a big bowl of popcorn. But um, that is not necessarily a, a helpful or sustainable way to think about spiritual growth and formation. Yes. So, Michelle, in your in your own journey, you had, like all of us do, a little training wheel period. Uh, talk about that, and uh, you know, what are those uh, those things that supported your faith early on? And that's here's the thing. Um, there are some of us who have extraordinarily good senses of balance and can get on a two wheeler. Um, straight from the tricycle and ride down the street. But most of us need a training wheel period. And, um, and I think that God is so kind in the beginning of our journeys, whether we're children or whether we come to faith as adults to um, offer us props and programs. And, you know, if we want to know how to, have a successful family if we've come from a chaos family going to a seminar and getting some handy tips can be 
can seem like a promise that it's going to work if we just apply the principles or we follow a financial plan that's meant to get us out of the debt that we've caused for ourselves or we listen to many, many sermon series that have to do with our felt needs. And so after a while, those kinds of things, they're well-intentioned, they're helpful, but they can sometimes kind of um, imply that it that life actually is that simple mm. that you can boil it down to seven steps or five points or fill in the blanks and we all know if we've been if we've lived for a while that it hardly ever works that way did it work that way for you guys no not in the least <laughs> thank you for asking there's a lot of wiggling going on <sighs> yeah yeah, and I just get frustrated by that pro pro and maybe I err too much on the other side where I resist a program approach um and could really gain something out of it. Uh but I, I just I hate that simplistic the simplistic sell that seems to come at the beginning. But you could see why it's attractive. Well, yeah, but it but it to me it just rings it it can't be that simple. It it can't be that simple and it rarely is that simple. But if you are young and don't have a lot of life experience, or if the life experience that you bring into your new faith is mostly hard stuff, loss and chaos or addiction, um, the the simple steps of, you know, if you do these, if you pray this way, if you read your Bible every day, if you follow this or that formula, the formulas are helpful. We need training wheels. Yeah. But I think the the thing that is often lacking, and it's really on all of us who have been around for a while, to be able to say the formulas are training wheels, but the training wheels are have to come off mm. you know as you're learning to walk and ride um you know without those training wheels on your own walk with Jesus you have to be able to say to somebody it's not this simple right okay so and Michelle then in the I'm sorry in the interest of time then right if you were that person who is seasoned and you have a friend or a colleague who is ending that training will period what tools can you offer them well I, I think the the best tool we have is our own honesty even if it's uncomfortable about our own journey our failures the complexities that we deal with i love more than anyone a nice simple yes no black white fill in the blank answer i like to know that i've gotten it right and um to be able to tell somebody there's principles that god has for us but there's also a a complex world that we're living in and um, here's here's my story. Here's where I failed. Here's where I've succeeded. Here's the fact that I found that only two out of the five principles um, to fix my finances actually applied in my situation or my marriage or my parenting. 
Michelle Van Loon is with us. Michelle is the author of several books, including her most recent, Translating Your Past, Finding Meaning in Family Ancestry, Genetic Clues, and Generational Trauma. Michelle, I, it, we only have maybe, I don't know, it looks like four minutes left. So I just want to switch gears and ask you, I mean, we can't have a long conversation about it because of time, but um, I want to ask how you're doing. Um, you are a person of Jewish ancestry who's come to a, a belief in Jesus uh, since the uh, October 7th attack, Hamas against um, Israel. We have talked uh, about how you're processing this, how you see things unfolding as far as the conversation people are having in America. So how do you see the latest? Um, I am rejoicing like like so many that um, seeing some of those hostages come home heartbroken at um, the fact that there are many still being held and um, pained greatly by the explosion that I've always known has been sitting under the surface of anti-Semitism, that it's there. Um, and the best gift that your listeners can give to the Jewish people in their world is to call it, whether the, the person is standing there or whether they're not, but to to question it and call it when you hear um, insensitive and racist kinds of things. Your Muslim friends need that as well. Um, and I'm saying this as a Jewish person who's experienced quite a bit of anti-Semitism. Even as I'm a follower of Jesus, I am a Jewish follower of Jesus first. I'm into that. All right, Michelle, next time you come on, maybe we'll set aside a couple segments so we can talk more about that. Um, just so you know that we love you and that we appreciate the role that you play, uh, not just in our show, but in the wider uh, world, and especially the kinds of stuff that you put out online and in social media, which I really believe is so helpful. So thank you. Thank you guys for continuing to hold up a microphone and amplify. I'm uh, grateful for that. Our pleasure. Information about Michelle Van Loon online, michellevanloon.com. Take a quick break. We're going to, we do come back. We're going to talk about today's memorial service for Rosalind Carter. Stay with us. This is Pittsburgh's Christian Talk. It's the ride home on Word FM. Welcome back. Thanks for being with us for the Tuesday edition of the ride home. This afternoon, Rosalind Carter was memorialized as a matriarch who felt more comfortable among the impoverished and vulnerable than world leaders. As a rare gathering of all living U.S. First Ladies and multiple presidents, including her 99-year-old husband, Jimmy Carter, in the front row, all mourned her collectively. Wow. Jimmy Carter and Rosalind had been married 77 years. Hmm. What an outrageous number of years. That's fabulous. That's outrageous. Rosalind Carter died November 19th at 96. Quote, my mother was the glue that held our family together through the ups and downs and the thicks and thins of our family's politics, her son, James Earl Chip Carter III, said. The former president, who was 10 months into his home hospice care and hadn't been seen in public since September, watched from his wheelchair, reclined a bit with his legs up and covered by a blanket with his wife's face on it, with Chip and his daughter, Amy, holding his hands. Their other sons, Jeff and Jack, flanked them. The former president stayed Monday night at the Carter Center, steps from where the former first lady lay in repose. Quote, he never wants to be very far from her, said Amy Carter. He had a good night and he is rested. 
President Joe Biden and First Lady Jill Biden, their longtime friends, were among the dignitaries. Former President Bill Clinton, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, along with the former First Lady Melania Trump, Michelle Obama, Laura Bush, paid their respects, as did Vice President Kamala Harris and Second Gentleman Doug Emhoff. Georgia's U.S. Senators and Governor Brian Kemp and his wife, Mary Kemp, joined more than a 1,000 people in the sanctuary. Former President Donald Trump, Barack Obama, and George W. Bush were invited but will not attend. Chip Carter offered a tribute to his mother, as you said, John. John is reading from the AP. I'm reading here from CBS News, uh, recalling how his mother mended his torn Lyndon B. Johnson shirts. <laughs> <laughs> Loved the campaign trail and also encouraged him to enter rehab for his addiction struggles. Mm. She saved my life, he said. Chip, the second eldest son of the four Carter children, uh, also talked about his mother's rock-solid faith. He said, quote, my mother, Rosalind Carter, was the most beautiful woman I've ever met and pretty to look at, too. Fabulous. Without Rosalind Carter, I don't believe there would have been a President Carter. That was said several times from the podium. Whether Jimmy Carter would participate was a day-to-day question. It was his first public appearance appearance in September when he and Rosalind Carter rode together in the Plains Peanut Festival Parade, visible only through open windows in a secret service vehicle. The Carters married in 1946. Wow. And became the longest married presidential couple in United States history. Jimmy Carter is the longest-lived president. Rosalind Carter was the second-longest-lived first lady, trailing only Bess Truman, who died at 97. Praised for a half-century of advocacy for better mental health care in America and reducing stigmas attended, attached to mental illness, Rosalind Carter brought attention to the tens of millions of people who work as unpaid caregivers in U.S. households and was acclaimed for her integrity as she attended to her husband and his political rise. Rosalind was 18 when she married Jimmy Carter. Journalist Judy Woodruff is quoted in this CBS article. She said, what a love story. For 77 years, they adored each other and had much in common. Intelligence, compassion, curiosity, courage, and apparently they could both be a little stubborn. She often said the most challenging time in their marriage was when they co-authored a book. Rosalind Carter is buried after a private ceremony, a graveside service, on a plot that the couple will share, visible from the front porch of the home that they built before Jimmy Carter first became a political campaign in 1962, where they have lived in that house and raised their family. Amy Carter shared a letter Jimmy wrote to his wife 75 years ago during the service when he was away in the Navy. He said this, quote, my darling, every time I've ever been away from you, I have been thrilled when I return to discover just how wonderful you are. Fabulous. Mm-hmm. Rest well, Rosalind Carter. To me, the James Webb Telescope mm. is probably... <laughs> One of the greatest inventions in the history of mankind, and I don't say that lightly because there's been a heck of a lot of great inventions, but when you see these images, when you see the images that the James Webb Telescope produces and then the science behind it, I mean, I'm only looking at the pictures and going, wow, 
That sure is pretty. But the science behind it is a totally different story. Hugh Ross is with us. Dr. Ross is a senior scholar, founder of Reasons to Believe, an organization that researches and communicates how discoveries about nature harmonize with the words of the Bible. His books include The Creator and the Cosmos and Why the Universe is the Way it Is. But Hugh is here today to talk to us about Big Bang Cosmology. Hugh, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you. Hugh, let's start at no pun intended, at the the beginning. Um, Explain to our listeners and to John and I uh, the very basics of what Big Bang cosmology tells us. Yeah, fundamentally it states that the universe has a beginning. It's not infinitely old. It's not eternal. It has a beginning, a beginning that includes the beginning of space, time, matter, and energy. So if the universe has a beginning, then does that mean it will have an end? Well, uh, with the the universe expanding continuously from the cosmic creation event, there reaches a point where all the energy flow from hot bodies to cold bodies ceases because everything in the universe becomes the same temperature. And astronomers refer to that as the heat death of the universe because when everything is exactly the same temperature, that means there's no heat flow, no possibility for work, and no possibility for life. Hmm. So, Hugh, if the universe ends, will there be a second universe? Well, that's what's distinct about the Christian faith. I mean, when I looked at the different religions of the world uh, during my teenage years, I noticed that unique to the Bible was two distinct creations, uh, where you got the first creation as a tool in God's hands to eradicate evil and suffering, excuse me, once and for all, and then a new creation where evil and suffering will never exist, uh, but where the free will capability of angels and humans who choose to go there will be exponentially enhanced. It's a two-creation model. And we have the promise in Romans 8.23 that the moment that the full number of humans that God intends to redeem have in fact been redeemed, then God will replace this universe with a brand new creation, a new creation with different laws of physics and different dimensions. Okay, so different laws of physics and different dimensions. Um, Okay, first off, I'm going to ask you to use your imagination as to what that might look like, but also how do you know that the new earth would have those differences? Well, what we see in Scripture, uh, and it's something I wrote about in Why the Universe is the Way It Is, the present laws of physics and the space-time dimensions have been exquisitely designed by the Creator to be efficient tools in His hands for the eradication of all evil and suffering. Uh, but it's because of those laws of physics that we're subjected, say, to gravity and thermodynamics and electromagnetism, which means that everything decays. Case. And it was Jesus who said, in this world, you'll have tribulation. Uh, I like to paraphrase that. In this world, you'll have thermodynamics. But take heart, 
I've overcome that thermodynamics. Uh, the moment evil has been eradicated, there is no longer a need for gravity, electromagnetism, thermodynamics, uh, or us being constrained to just one dimension at a time. Uh, therefore, God will take us into a new creation where there is no gravity, which means uh, your chin's not going to sag as you get older and older. Uh, your skin's not going to wrinkle up because of electromagnetism. There'll be no decay. There'll be no death because there's no thermodynamics. And I also believe that our capability for relationships is going to be exponentially enhanced because no longer will we be constrained to a single dimension of time where time can't be stopped or reversed. Wow. Okay, so Hugh, with all that, then how does the James Webb Telescope inform us probably, you know, as sort of minimal bystanders, but you as an astrophysicist more in tune? What does the James Webb Telescope give you about the universe and the new universe? Well, it's the one telescope that's able to give us insights to what's happening in the first two billion years of cosmic history. We got a good understanding what happens from two billion years to 14 billion years, uh, but you have to look really far away to get insights into the first two billion years. And this is where the different Big Bang creation models differ from one another. And so, you know, people think we have just one Big Bang model. We don't. Uh, we got about a dozen distinct Big Bang models. And where they really differ from one another is on the number and masses and the formation history of the universe's first stars. And that's the mission of the James Webb Space Telescope, to give us insights into what the first stars look like and what the first galaxies look like, and therefore re uh, reveal to us which of the dozen Big Bang creation models is a correct description uh, for the origin and history of the universe. So the different uh, Big Bang models, and I'm one of those people that didn't realize that there were different ones, um, what so what differentiates them is how is the you said the the initial formation of the earliest stars well like some big bang models uh, hypothesize that the first stars are very massive like uh, several hundred to even a thousand times more massive uh, than the sun. Uh, today, you only get stars that are about 60 times the mass of our star, the sun. But the physics of the uni early universe actually permits more massive stars. And so, and then how many stars form? Some Big Bang models say only a few stars form in that early epoch. Others say a whole lot form. And then what happens to those big Big stars. And so one of the things that the James Webb is already revealing, it looks like there's a lot more supernova eruption events happening in those first two billion years than what many Big Bang creation models had hypothesized. And so I think there's going to be some exciting discoveries there. And I also shared with people on my Facebook and Twitter pages, you know, be patient. The initial images uh, from the James Webb Space Telescope are revealing the brightest objects and the brightest events in the early universe. That may not represent uh, the total nature of what's going on in the early universe. We need deep images from the Hubble or the James Webb Space Telescope and many different parts of the universe to actually reveal what are the population statistics of the galaxy 
galaxies, what are the population statistics of those stars, and we need to get spectral measurements. Spectral measurements will confirm what distances these stars and galaxies are at, and therefore what look-back times they are. That's going to take probably in the next three to five years to fully flesh out. And so people have been jumping to conclusions and saying it's too soon to do that because the first images are basically giving us uh, the highlights of the brightest events. We really need to get a deeper understanding. Reminds me of a lot of what happened. We discovered the first quasars. People were saying, wow, they're too bright. They're too close. Well, those are the easiest ones to detect. Today, we have a database of over a million quasars. We now have a good understanding of quasar physics. Uh, but it took literally three decades to get that good understanding. Hmm. Hugh Ross is with us. He's an astrophysicist, an author, senior scholar, and founder of Reasons to Believe. Reasons to Believe is an organization that researches and communicates how discoveries about nature harmonize with the words of the Bible. Hugh, this is so incredibly fascinating. So I, I wonder this. I mean, the James Webb Telescope is as advertised, and what you're describing is it's taking us back to the beginning of creation in many ways. Is it possible? I mean, is that even a reality that we can go pre-creation with the James Webb Telescope? It will show us the darkness, the void before the Big Bang? Well, it's designed to show us what's called the cosmic dawn, and that cosmic dawn is defined when the very first stars form. We actually already have radio telescopes, millimeter radio telescopes, that observe much earlier in cosmic history than what the James Webb is able to do. James Webb is going to explore the region from about 200 million years after the cosmic creation event uh, to about 3 billion years after the cosmic creation event. But, for example, we have millimeter wave telescopes that actually reveal to us the nature of the universe when it's a hundred billionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second old. That's how early we can get to the cosmic creation event. That's incredible. Dr. Hugh Ross is with us. Hugh, can you stay with us for a minute? We're going to take a break. Can we come back and have maybe another five with you? That'd be great. Terrific. Thank you. That's Dr. Hugh Ross. He's an astrophysicist and also an author. You can check out one of his many books, including Why the Universe is the Way It Is. We'll be right back on The Ride Home. back with Dr. Hugh Ross, astrophysicist and author. Uh, One of his many books that you can uh, investigate is The Creator and the Cosmos, also Improbable Planet. And speaking of improbable things, we're talking about some of the discoveries that the James Webb Telescope is revealing to scientists about the earliest portions of the Big Bang. Hugh, we're asking you, Kath and I are asking you questions about the beginning of creation and the Big Bang and the James Webb Telescope. But as this research goes on, and there you have a front row seat. Uh, Are there questions that you would like to have answered that come to mind? Well, definitely. I mean, and it's not just going to be the James Webb. For example, we radio astronomers are going to be putting an array of radio telescopes on the backside of the moon next year, and that's going to explore a part of the electromagnetic spectrum that's never been seen before, Uh, very long radio wavelengths uh, where Uh, Human activity, uh, uh, radio interference makes it impossible to do that on the surface of the Earth or even on a satellite orbiting the Earth. 
backside of the moon. It's going to show us about the physics of large stars at the cosmic dawn that the James Webb cannot reveal. Hmm. So the combination of the James Webb and this telescope on the backside of the moon, I think, is really going to give us amazing insights at what's happening to the physics of the first stars, when they form, how big they are, how many they are, what kind of elements they pour into interstellar space. I mean, James Webb is already revealing to us that we're getting more heavy elements in the early universe than we thought of, which actually makes it possible to bring human beings upon the cosmic scene as quickly as just 13.8 billion years. Uh, one of the things that amazes me as an astronomer is that if we were put here any earlier in cosmic history, not only would we not have the heavy elements we need for advanced civilization, we wouldn't be able to see all the way back to the cosmic creation event. And if we were here any later, we wouldn't be able to see all the way back to the cosmic creation event. God put us here at just the right time and just the right location of the universe that we humans can observe 100% of the past history of the universe, actually see what the universe looked like when it was a hundred billionth of a of a trillionth of a second old. And is that our ability to read the cosmic book of nature to that degree that allows us to gain the most compelling scientific evidence that a God beyond space and time must have created everything? I don't think it's a coincidence that we're here at just the one time and just the one place so that we could read the whole history of the universe. Hmm. If you're interested in that subject, uh, I would suggest checking out Improbable Planet, uh, in which uh, Hugh discusses uh, some of those ideas. And speaking of ideas, Hugh, I want to ask you about the ideas that James Webb has brought to the scientific community. Um, I know that there is a lot of analysis that still has to happen. Um, But even just to this point, from what's been revealed and what we know, is there anything that um, has been surprising to you? Well, what's been surprising to me is I'm seeing a lot more design being revealed from the James Webb Space Telescope uh, than I thought it would be able to detect. I mean, uh, even just in the first year and a half, uh, the discoveries uh, have been you know, really remarkable in showing us, hey, it's a lot more fine-tuned than we thought. I'm also impressed with the beauty of the images that have been revealed by James Webb. I mean, I post them on my Facebook page, and people look at them and say, wow, this is just gorgeous. And it's like, there's a God behind the universe that seems to really appreciate beauty, mm. even in the galaxies. And my peers who are not Christians, they can't help themselves. They refer to these galaxies as grand design galaxies. That's a term that they use. Really? So everyone is, yeah, they're just struck by the beauty of what they see out there. Hugh. I need you to go back because that question I asked earlier about the beginning of it all, before there was void, and then you said radio telescopes have already determined. Please give me that number again, um, the second of the numbers. Yeah, it's 10 to the minus 35 seconds after the cosmic creation event. It's referred to the inflation event. It's when the universe expands at millions of times the velocity of light. And it's that very quick Uh, sudden and dramatic expansion that makes the universe big enough 
for advanced life and thermally connected so advanced life is possible. If it wasn't for that inflation event, there'd be no possibility for life anytime, anywhere. And it's our ability to look at the cosmic background radiation, the radiation left over from the cosmic creation event. That gives us a state of the universe when it's 380,000 years old. When we look at the polarization of that radiation left over from the cosmic creation event, it reveals the condition of the universe when it was just one hundred billionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second old. And within a couple years, I think we're going to know exactly what kind of inflation uh, brought the universe into its present condition. Is it just one constant governing it? Is it two or three constants? And when we find out, we're going to have even more evidence for the design of the universe that makes our existence possible. So when scientists look at that inflation event, pre and post, you, is it undeniable? Can you say this is God in motion, what, however you want to define that, whether you're a believer or not? Well, what we can prove, and this is in my book, The Crater and the Cosmos, the fourth edition, we can prove that a cosmic inflation event definitely happened. We can also prove it's absolutely essential in order to have physical life in the universe. What we don't know yet is exactly what kind of inflation is responsible for bringing the universe into its present condition. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I've got friends at the South Pole. There's a radio telescope at the South Pole uh, that's geared up to answer that question. Uh, Hugh, we only have a minute or so left, uh, but one of the things I appreciate most about you is not just uh, your scientific understanding, but the fact that you are a deep thinker in all realms. And so I guess I want to ask for, you know, in light of all of this and all of the the work and reading that you have done, uh, we're in the middle of two major wars on our tiny improbable planet. Um, and there's an incredible amount of suffering. Um, what are your thoughts? Well, neither war makes any rational sense. It's not to the benefit of Putin to launch a war against Ukraine. It's a counter to his best interests. I could say the same thing for Hamas's attack on Israel. And it just reminds me, we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. We wrestle with supernatural powers. There are angelic beings there. The only way I can explain why politics doesn't make sense, why we see all these senseless wars that are counter to the best interests of even the people who start them, is that it's not just flesh and blood. It's not just humans fighting one another. There's a spiritual battle going on. And this, I think, will help us to pray. I mean, just praying for the human aspect isn't going to solve the problem. Uh, We're in a spiritual battle, and uh, it's a battle over people's souls, and we're going to win the battle by changing people's hearts one person at a time. Hugh, our deep respect. Always a great pleasure to be with you. Just fascinating. Hugh Ross, he is uh, the senior scholar and founder of Reasons to Believe. Look for it online. Reasons to Believe. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. 
Hey, good afternoon, and welcome to the 5 o'clock hour of the Tuesday edition of A Very Cold Ride Home. Burr. I am telling you what, winter... <laughs> is upon us. Yeah, mm. winter has definitely arrived. Do you have heated seats for your ride home? I do not. Mm. Thank mm. you for asking. Yeah, I do have heated seats. You... Yeah, they're well, very nice. Well, pardon me. They're very, Lexi, very nice. you have heated seats? Do you like that? Like, nope. nope. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you what, I mean, I initially scoffed at them. Yeah. <laughs> it's really nice. Mm-hmm. It heats things up fast. Yeah. So you you can sort of because you know when you you go out there now it's dark and cold. It takes a long time for that heater to yeah, kick into gear, it right? Does. It's a good. What, what do you think? I I almost ten probably. Probably so until it reaches some level of comfort because there's nothing worse than cold air blowing on yeah, you. Yeah, well. I need to be on the other side of the tunnel. Yeah. Before I even get a little vestige. Mm-hmm, I agree. Yeah, but the heated seat, boom, almost immediately. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a heated steering wheel, too? No, I don't have a heated steering wheel. Okay. That's a little excessive. <laughs> oh, all of a sudden, it's whatever is beyond yours is what's excessive, right? Although you do see it and kind of go, really? Uh, okay. Does your uh, Is your seat also a cooling seat in the summer? Uh, no, it's not. Believe me, I'm not at that stratosphere. There's okay. no way. No. Okay. Pretty basic here, Kath. Okay? It's interesting. It's a, it's a you know... It's a Honda. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, you know, I'm driving around in a Mercedes or anything like that. Okay, I mean, I'm just checking. The heck? Anyway, coming up on uh, in the 5 o'clock hour today, uh, we're going to be talking about what it is that you think you know when you're age 33, and then what you think you know maybe when you're 69. <laughs> There's a big gap there, yeah. isn't there? Yeah, I yeah. I mean, 33, you kind of, you know, you should None have your act together, right? Yeah. we've all, So you and I have been 39. Lexi has not yet been, or er, 33. 33. Lexi's not yet been 33. Mm-hmm, no. None of us have been 69. Mm-mm, nope. Although so I'm, closing in, <laughs> I'm closing in on that. Nothing. So I don't know. It'd be kind of an interesting conversation. All right, good. That's coming up in this hour. Wisdom at the uh, 540 mm-hmm. section. Okay, listen, really good news today. Uh, for the past two weeks... You've followed the story at all. There have been 41 workers trapped in a tunnel in India, underground, 41 people. Now, remember the Q Creek mine disaster? Sure. I mean, that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Of course, that wasn't that far away. Those those poor guys, uh, there was nowhere near two-plus weeks. This is almost, uh, in reading about this, uh, I've been reading about this almost three weeks. So uh, they were digging a tunnel for automobiles to go to different um, sacred sites in this far-flung portion in India. Okay. The tunnel collapsed. Now, the good news was that uh, the Indian authorities were able to push a pipe deep into this trapped uh, tunnel where these 41 workers were, where they were able to send them food and water and, of course, communication. So there was never any worry that they were going to expire. But meanwhile, there they were, you know, stuck deep into, mm-hmm. a, into a tunnel with uh, very you know, little electricity, very little water, very little comforts. But today, the first miner, and then quickly, all 41 walked out of that That's tunnel. That's incredible. It is. Um, over over th- close to three weeks, the workers were pulled out through a passage made of welded pipes, which rescuers previously pushed through the dirt and the rocks. As the first person came out, um, a wreath was laid around his neck as a welcome. Mm. These were all generally migrant workers at this tunnel. 
And so these were low-wage workers working for not a whole lot of cash, but doing good work. Um, safety, uh, safety experts say the quality, like, you know, we have OSHA here in this country. So every work site is controlled by the federal government. You must follow this. You must follow that. Of course, in a lot of places in this world, uh, the construction tends to be shoddy. I, I guess it's fair to say that. Shoddy, not up to standards, and not controlled by one governing body. Mm-hmm. Which is why events like sure, this happen. happen, right? So, really incredible news. Forty-one workers were rescued today uh, in uh, rural India. Which I, I cannot imagine how happy you would be to see the light of day. Yep, the drill that they were using, this gigantic drill, broke on Friday of last week. So they were digging by hand these last several days. They knew they were close. But could you imagine hundreds and hundreds of people were digging with shovels and picks uh, to finally get these guys out? Wow. Yeah. It's an incredible story. Yep. We need to step away. But when we come back, the Reverend Jay Slocum's going to be waiting for us. How to have a civil conversation, John, in a world of antagonism. Hmm. That's what we strive for every day on the ride home. We'll see how we're doing. Stay with us. Hey, welcome back. Thanks for coming along today for the Tuesday edition of The Ride Home. Kath, in the course of a week, do you have zero to five, five to ten, or ten (laughs) and more antagonistic conversations? Oh, I'm happy to say zero to five. Zero to five? Yeah, but there have been times in my life and times, (laughs) you know, on our show (laughs) when we've had certainly the, the average has been higher. Five to ten or ten plus. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I guess it depends upon where you find yourself. I mean, some antagonistic conversations are can be well managed. Other ones get out of control from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Jay Slocum is back with us. Jay's been a regular guest of our sh- show over the many years. He, Jay is the rector at St. Thomas Anglican Church in Gibsonia, here today to talk to us about how to have a civil conversation in a world full of antagonism. Jay, this is an excellent topic. Thanks for being with us. John and Kathy, it is great to be with you on this wintry day in Pittsburgh. So antagonism, that can heat things up pretty quick. Yeah, you know, uh, a lot of pastors uh, are used to being people who think a lot and engage ideas a lot. And when they're young and new at the craft, they oftentimes don't see antagonism for what it is, or people who are antagonistic. Uh, They tend to think, hey, we can talk about ideas and engage in reason and we can work this out. Mm-hmm. And then usually within a couple of years of being in a church, a pastor will find somebody who, uh, who goes from zero to a hundred in five minutes mm-hmm. and, uh, who we, we would call an, an antagonist. So it's really, really important for us to know who we're dealing with, um, out in the world. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Jay. One of the um, one of the exchanges in the Christian church, which I love, is "Peace be with you," and then the response is, "And also with you." I mean, it, it denotes yeah. many, many things. That peaceful attitude, that um, that example of goodwill, that as we speak and may disagree, there will still be peace of some sort between us. That that is a road to anti antagonism. Yeah, you know that that 
that phrase comes from uh, Ruth and Boaz making an exchange and saying the peace of the Lord. It's the word shalom. And it doesn't mean a passive, like, hey, man, hope everything goes well, peace. It's actually a Hebrew idea and word that means uh, when something is broken and it comes together, or when lots of complex pieces are put together and assembled properly, and then they are in harmony, that's what peace is, shalom. And so we're, we're entering into the Advent season as, uh, as a, a world of Christians who sort of practice that church year. And uh, it's in Advent that we hear, you know, Handel's Messiah in Isaiah 9, 6, where Jesus is referred to as the wonderful counselor and the prince of peace, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, that, so, go ahead, keep going. Yeah, so it's really important that I think we be people of peace. Yes. And uh, I think there's a way to do that. That's the question that I was just going to interrupt you with, which is, I know that we're supposed to be people of peace, and I want to be a person of peace. But sometimes my, um, sometimes I feel like my peaceful attitude is just kind of skimming the surface and kind of making sure everything looks okay, because I'm hesitant to get into uh, a deeper conversation that would be harder, but would probably produce a lasting peace. Yeah. So let me uh, let me tell you how how I, I work with this out. So I do. I probably married sixty couples in in my tenure, and one of the things I do with 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 couples who are engaged is I do um, premarital counsel with them. We talk about conflict and conflict engagement and conflict resolution. And uh, what I do is I do something called the conflict pyramid. Think of it as a mountain. It's hard to describe it on the radio because, you know, usually I'm at a whiteboard drawing a picture of a pyramid with five different, you know, uh, tiers to Mm -hmm. it. Picture a mountain, and at the bottom of the mountain, it's lovely and green. It's where the water settles. There's a lake. It's where you build your village, and and it's where life happens, and it's fairly stable. And I tell couples, that's the place where you need to live most of your life, and that's the place of disagreement and argument. And there's a a road up ahead that you can go on, and it's called uh, the fight and then there's a road farther up the mountain where it's windy and turbulent and uh, there's snow up there and it's called the battle. Hmm. At the very top of the mountain, and it's a place where you never want to go, is where the war takes place. And uh, when, you're, when you're at the bottom and you're in the disagreement mode, um, you're putting things, problems in front of people, you're refuting arguments with points, you're finding mistakes in people's thinking and then using facts to correct them. You may contradict someone, but you're giving evidence for why. Um, You may oppose a person's point of view, but you give reasons for that, and you never make it about the person. You make it about the problem. And what I tell couples is the minute you get to that place where you say, you always, you never, mm-hmm. and it becomes personal, you've entered the upper road of that mountain and you're on a journey to war. And, you know, a fight is a place where you have to mediate by saying, I'm sorry, because you made it personal. And the battle is a place where you say, I don't care if I lose an arm, I just want to win and the war says burn it down it doesn't matter i'm all in and that's usually when i see a couple come in uh, with a lawyer Hmm. and that is the mountain of 
conflict. And Kathy, I think the reason why you may be hesitant is because you may not know who you're encountering. Mm, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you, you may be encountering a person who's li- used to living in the, uh, in the upper road of the mountain and the mid region where they live in fight and battle. Or you may be dealing with somebody who, you know, everybody is some, an enemy or a friend and it's black and white and there's no middle ground. And that's a dangerous place. And that's that's who we find in our churches who, you know, are the gossips or the slanderers or the people who ambush you or the people who spread, you know, the, the thread that devastates a person's life. It's the bully in school, right? Yes. So, Jay, as Advent is just underway, is there a diagram, a path forward, a map for peace be with you? Yeah, John, you know, I think that um, we're living in an age of incivility and our political leaders and uh, the algorithms on our social media outlets are driving us into camps where we are really not living down at the bottom of the mountain. We're not living in a place where we're listening to other people's ideas. Mm and we're making good sound arguments or we're having disagreements where we we just heard a person say something and then we said I hear what you say and I don't agree here's what I think instead we're we're we are I I'm, I'm witnessing our culture being in a, a very dangerous place where um, people are saying horrendous things about one another publicly in debate in uh, editorials um, at microphones you know, at radio stations and television stations all across the world. And that it's, it, it's a bad route to take. It is a bad route to take. And, but the, the things that we hear are things that were already being thought of a long time before they came out of somebody's mouth. But now they're just unhinged. Yeah, they're unhinged. Well, you know, this isn't new either. If you look at the founding of our country and you look at the battle between Hamilton and Jefferson, you know, they were writing under anonymous names so that they could slander one another and take each other apart. Um, And I I, I believe in free speech. You know, I think that people should have a right to say what they need to say. And and, uh, I don't think we should muzzle people. Right. But uh, this isn't the first time in our our history. as a country that we've seen this level of um, vitriol coming out of people's mouths. It, it, it's not its not what people who follow the Prince of Peace ought to do. We, we ought not to be tearing people down and slandering their character and, and focusing on, um, you know, a, a, a person's um, person rather than the ideas that they represent. And that's hard, you know. It's almost impossible, Jay. I mean, I I was reading the other day uh, about, um, you know, world politics, uh, certainly uh, uh, on the American stage. People were saying, well, you know, what what Hamas did in early October, that's not even ISIS. That's beyond ISIS, which like we've we've gone beyond something that we all, oh, beheadings are horrific. Now we've gone beyond beheadings and what that portends for the the state of the world as far as violence. I mean, uh, so. So how do you how do you give peace be with you when, you know, children are being brutalized like this, whether it's, you know, Israeli children or Palestinian children? I mean, everyone's got an opinion, but there's no solution. 
Well, I think that, um, you know, there's justified anger at evil and there's justified anger at wickedness. And, you know, we follow the Prince of Peace who also cleared the temple and spent three chapters from Matthew 23 to 25 absolutely ripping into the Pharisees for being whitewashed walls, he called them, or sons of hell. I mean, he, he, he definitely was capable of, of being angry. Um, and uh, there, is, there is a time when war is necessary, yeah. but it doesn't, it doesn't characterize his life and his ministry. Um, you know, when, when you're in a war, you're in a war. I don't think you want to live there 24/7 365. Households don't do well when they're constantly in conflict, right? It's exhausting. It's exhausting, right? And and now that we've let in the monster uh through our our screens and it, it, we could actually live with that kind of stuff all day long. I I won't watch the news. I I stopped watching it after I read, you know, CS Lewis and he said you know, all newspapers are twaddle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that was a, 1997. <laughs> so. That's an excellent word. Uh, Reverend Jay Slocum <laughs> is with us. Uh, tell us about St. Thomas Anglican Church. St. Thomas is a beautiful church in the Anglican tradition in Gibsonia, Pennsylvania. And we are a growing church that meets at 8 a.m. Uh, with a 9.15 adult education hour and a 1015 service. Uh, we're known for our uh, radical hospitality and generosity and fellowship. And we love the Bible and the gospel and, and the Lord Jesus. Amen to that. Jay, always a pleasure. Thanks for being with us. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Reverend Jay Slocum, he is the rector at St. Thomas Anglican Church in Gibsonia. What makes sense? Dropping in. <laughs> so you don't call. You just drop by. You just knock on somebody's door and you're there. Yeah. I'm not going to text and say I'm on my way. I'm not going to do it. We don't have a plan. I'm just dropping in. Yeah, I have a terrible story about dropping in. Do you? Years ago, when I was a single man, I was living in a place, and my mom and my sister just decided to drop in. (laughs) And when they did, they saw me peek out the window. And my mother said, we'll never do that again, because your face at our arrival was (laughs) abhorrent. And I felt horrible. Like... I was a little shocked that they would just show up. Nothing was going on. I was by myself hanging out, and I was—I guess I was just surprised. So I was like, no, 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 Mom, please, you, you can always drop by. You're always welcome. She never did again. Because you looked so horrified. Yes. So, I mean... So what does that mean? Dropping in, does that make sense? Or does it not make sense? I want it to make sense. Yeah. Because I want to be neighborly and, you know, just the spur of the moment. <laughs> but I, I don't like it. You don't like it? No, I don't. I don't. Lexi, he doesn't like it. We can't drop in. Don't drop in. Okay. 
Give me a call. Text me first or something. Okay. okay? Just mm-hmm. what do you think it makes sense? Drop Listen, by? somebody dropped in last night. Did they? My Just house, drop by. Nine o'clock. Oh, nine o'clock. I loved it. Oh. I loved it. Oh, my God. It was totally unexpected. I was sitting there in my jams under a blanket on this. I somebody loved it. Somebody showed up. I loved it. You know why? Mm. Because nobody does it anymore. That's why I loved it. I was like, I love the fact that you feel comfortable enough here that you're dropping by. What if you were like, you know, sleeping or what if you were a what mess? Were? Or what I, just... I mean, I was kind of a mess, but I wasn't sleeping. Really? I like it. I think uh, it makes sense, John. Okay. I think dropping in. Uh, yes. Doesn't make sense to me. Okay. This is a minor thing, but I think about this and often. Do, do fancy bookmarkers make sense? Oh, that's an interesting thing. Yes. This is why. Because I don't have one. And all of mine are junky. I don't even use them. I'll use a pen or I'll fold a page over, like yeah, the top of the but page. Yeah, but you're, you're destroying the book there. That's yeah, okay. <laughs> but I see people like, you know, with like these little pieces of don't, metal. Don't you or, look at that and you think, well, that's a good idea. It looks very civilized to me. But you're not doing it. I'm not doing it. You don't care. I'm going to stick a pen in there and come back or a post-it note. Well, you think it's just an extra step? No, it's just it's just there. It's just going to take you, you back to where I'm... you No, it's a little much. <laughs> I mean, do you have a? I mean, you, I'll get you one for Christmas. Okay, because I would like to have one. A fancy one. bookmarker. I'd like one. All right. Okay. Well, it doesn't make any sense to me. And believe me, I'm not just dropping in. A couple of months ago, New Cane Light in our neighborhood installed new streetlights. And at the time, I really didn't think anything of it. Up until maybe two weeks or so ago, when I was taking the dog for a walk at dusk, which is, I would say, post-dusk, but it was, you know, later in the day. And what I discovered was the reflection of these new streetlights confounded me at first, because as I was walking on this wet street, was overhead, the light shone down, and I thought initially, as I walked toward this, this streak of gold in the street was that somehow, somewhere, someone had inadvertently dumped buckets of saffron because there was a golden glow to the street. But then as I walked closer and then walked through the golden saffron, I realized it was an overhead light. And I thought, is this just the time of the day? Or is it the street light themselves? But what I've discovered is, no matter the time of day or the evening... The reflection of the light is golden, and I find myself walking through these golden paths as I take the dog on a walk each night. And the reflection says there is just enough light, and especially in the golden light, it is a reminder to keep going. And to me, that was the really good news of these past few weeks. The world seems dark. There's much despair. But when we realize it, when we see it, all of us walk in a golden light. Anne Lamott wrote an opinion piece for the Washington Post called, At 33, I Knew Everything. At 69, I Know Something Much More Important. She writes, Today I woke up old and awful in every way. I simultaneously cannot bear the news and cannot turn it off. It's cobra hypnosis, Gaza, Israel, the shootings in Maine. The world 
it's as dark as a scarab. I have two memorial services on my calendar this week. A dear friend in the hospital waiting for a liver, dying. She keeps assuring me I ain't no ways tired. And I say, oh, stop with that or I'm not going to visit again. I'm exhausted just driving 90 minutes to and from San Francisco to see her. My body hurt quite a lot when I got out of bed this morning and I limped around like Granny Clampett for the first hour until it unseized. Worse, my mind hurt. My heart hurt. And I hated almost everyone except my husband, my grandson, and one of the dogs. I don't think, she writes, I could have borne up under all this 20 years ago when I thought I knew so much about life. That was not nearly as much as I knew at 33, which is when we know more than we ever will again. But age, she writes, has given me the ability to hang out without predicting how things will sort out this time and ever. So what do you know at 33 as opposed to what you know at 69. Well, Anne Lamott writes in the Washington Post that it's the fact that there is light, like you were just saying, that she takes her life truth from looking at a particular artist, Albert Bierstadt, and his use of light in painting. Um, And she goes on to say that there are lots of things in life that she has recognized that she doesn't know. She told the story of she and her siblings panicking when her mother was descending into Alzheimer's, and they were talking to a nurse and saying, how are we supposed to do this? How are we supposed to do that? How are, you know, all the things that they were, you know, freaking out about. And then they said, we don't know what we're doing. And the nurse said, of course, how could you? And she said, this literally had not crossed our minds. We just thought we were incompetent. In the shadow of the mountain of our mother's decline, we hardly knew where to begin. So we started where we were in the not knowing. So when I was younger, I didn't know. But I thought in my youth that I would reach a stage in my life that I would know and all would be well. What, you'd figure it out? Yeah. That, you know, when I was 12, I thought 30-year-olds had it all together. I distinctly remember being 30 and being humbled and a little brutalized living in New York City. And I didn't know. So I thought, oh, my parents they must know at 60 but i've been 60 (laughs) and at 60 i still don't know so is the equation then no matter how competent or secure that you feel about things because there are flashes of that thank goodness that for most of us life is just sliding through with Mm -hmm. i don't know Mm mm-hmm I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there are some things we do know. Oh, we know. But I think that there are fewer things than I thought there were when I was 33. Yeah. I thought that I would have a surety, a certainty. Yeah. A sense of, if not peace, at least control. That I had some control of yeah. things. I remember Tim Keller being on the show and him saying, I thought that when I got sick like this, I would feel older. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I felt I thought I'd feel like an old man. 
But instead, I feel like a young guy who's sick instead of being an old guy who's sick. I think that's one of the things about age, that age, no matter how old you are, and of course, I'm not 80 yet. I hope to be someday. But I think it's true of every age you're in that most people feel like they're 20 or 30-something. That's the mystery of age. Right. I know. Right? If you talk to old people, they'd still like, I'm still thinking like I was when I was 20 or 30 years of age. And that's really good news. That your mind is fresh, even yeah. though the body is beaten. Yeah, they also. I, I've also heard experts say that uh, we view ourselves, no matter how old we are, as we viewed ourselves when we were in eighth grade. <laughs> I remember. I remember being in seventh grade. I remember this very clearly. And my seventh grade teacher, Ms. Hill, said, "As you are right now, pretty much you will be most of your life." And I thought to myself, "Oh, that's good." Because I like myself. Hmm. So is that true? Is How old are you in seventh grade? 13? Yeah, probably. So uh, you become fully conscious, fully formed in that area. So not fully, but, you know... 80% of your thing. Are you? 80% of your thing? Well, when she, I don't, I remember it like it was yesterday. Yeah. Ms. Hill said that out loud, yeah. and I was like, oh, a little light bulb went off. Oh, okay, good. Could be worse, I guess. I don't know. I feel like I don't know. at 33, I had very established ideas about a lot of things. Hmm. I and didn't. You didn't. No. At 33, I was still unmarried. At 33, I was giving up on New York City. Mm. And I was beaten and a little, a little humiliated. Really? Mm-hmm. That it hadn't gone like I had dreamed and had certainty that it would go. I came... My tail was between my legs, in a way. My pride had been burst. Hmm. But I had a better second act from that because of what I had gone through. There. You didn't realize what that had turned you into? No. When I came back from New York, I was like, oh, this sure looks a heck of a lot easier in Pittsburgh than mm. it does in New York City. And a whole, like, whole heck of a lot better. Yeah. There was a flourishing after that fact. Yeah. But you couldn't have told me that as I was driving my U-Haul uh, out of midtown Manhattan. Mm. I felt like a loser. And that was... Towards the end of the 33s. What were you so certain of at 33? Are you still... Particularly uh, politics. <laughs> I was very political at 33. Very much so. Well, that's changed. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I knew exactly what I thought. I knew exactly who the good guys were and the bad guys were. Yeah. And I had a very black and white view of particularly American society. But I would say... Pretty much world, pretty much world politics too. <laughs> when my kids and I discuss politics around the dinner table, my oldest particularly, he'll scoff at me. Mm-hmm. It just makes me so angry. <laughs> it does. He scoffs, you know, as if I, I am such an antique. Because mm-hmm. he's certain, right? And I, I want to lash out, but I don't. I just eat it because because someday he's going to be older than he is, and he's going to realize. That it's not as black and white as you thought it was. I'm, but I'm glad for that. That's not something that I'm looking back on and mourning over. I'm looking back on it and thinking that's uh, that's wisdom 
is realizing that there are some things that I'm sure about. I'm sure that there's a God, and I'm certain that he saved my life. There's no question about that. And I'm Amen. certain Amen. that his direct actions in my life saved my life. It wasn't like mm-hmm. there was some no. like f- vague force for good in the world and it, you know, the sun shone on me the right way. No, no, no. There was a personal God yep. who impacted my personal life. Yes. That I am certain of. But a lot of other things past that. I've just, I don't know. I've, I've, I'm just not who I was. What I'm hungry for, and I think what we are lacking as a society, is that we have warehoused our elderly. And mm. so few of us have good yeah. relations with wisdom yep. of those who have gone before us yep. that we can feed upon. Yep. We need that. We need that other perspective. That big, long, because people in their 80s would they say know the same something. thing. Yeah. Yep. But I also say, think they would also say, I don't know. And it's okay not to know. Because like I began the conversation, I do believe that in front of us, there is this path of saffron gold that is before us. And it just requires, like you said, the surety that God is with us yes. and is in control. Yes. And we submit ourselves to that. Yeah. And the I don't knows turn into... I'll be okay. Yeah, because he knows. Oh, gosh. That is... Honestly, that's so annoying. The noise of someone chomping on chips can be irritating. You think... Especially if it's directly in your ear. So I'm just eating myself a bag of Doritos. So if you hear me, you know, on the radio or if you're on a a voice chat or a Zoom call, Mm -hmm. man, that is super annoying. Well, here's the weird story. Doritos has created Doritos Silent. It is a crunch cancellation software (laughs) that removes the sound of chewing from voice chat the Zoom, or any call that uses headphones. But Dorito Silent was really created for gamers because... Oh, they're wearing a headset. They're wearing a headset late at night, and they are chomping away. And like you just heard, extremely annoying. So thousands and thousands, probably millions of people are gaming every night, and they're snacking. Because who doesn't like to snack and game at the same time? All right? Um... People were surveyed. 90% said that they snack while they game. And uh, most of them said they make the most bothersome noise, which is chewing chips. into a headset. Yep. Research has also showed that the crunch of Doritos is part of what people like about them. So Doritos did something about it. They went to work with, here's the dreaded word, AI researchers. Oh, great. And AI researchers have produced this new app. So if you're a gamer, you can download Doritos Silent and put it on your headphone. And here's the weird thing. It's not going to be just for gamers. It's coming to broadcast microphones No way. Mm -hmm. So I can eat Doritos on the air. Oh, that'd be just terrific. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep. Because what smells better than an open bag of Doritos? (sighs) 
Yeah, it does smell good. Listen to this, though. In 2018, uh, Doritos claimed that they were developing a, quote, chip for women, which was intended to be a low-crunch alternative with reduced orange finger dust. (laughs) There was backlash online, and PepsiCo later said that it was just a misunderstanding, and it was not, in fact, releasing the specific Doritos product for women. However, to address the crunch issue in the gaming community, Doritos <laughs> turned to technology because people have said, I mean, longtime gamers, it's always a distraction. And if someone's doing it, it ruins my game. OK, what about forget gaming? Does it bother you just in normal house association? No. OK. Because I know I'm guilty of it, so I can't cast the stone. Lexi, does that bother you? And like... Not particularly. Uh-huh. Does it bum you up? Yep. It does. Oh, yep. no. Really? Yep. And here's the thing. It's a gauche. My one child uh, confessed to me about three years ago that she can't stand how I chew salad. Oh. <laughs> oh. I was like, oh. wow. Well, that's rough. Wow. She's like, Mom, I'm sorry. It's not, you know I love you. You know I'd do anything for you. But this, I can't stand to be in the room with you when you're eating salad. Really? That's harsh. Because you eat a lot of salad. I eat a lot of salad. To be honest, I've been with you when you've eaten a lot of salads. I've never noticed. Okay, well, that's because in the last three or four years, I've become attuned to it. And so now I try to be very careful about how I'm eating a salad. Really? Maybe I was a chomper. I don't think that. I said, what is it about it? She said, the more we discuss it, the more upset I'm getting. Oh, maybe that's her problem (laughs) and not your problem. That's the problem. Well, yeah. The more we discuss it, the more upset I get. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then you can leave the room. So anyway, it's not just it's not just Doritos. I have to be honest. I don't like Doritos. I'm not a big fan myself of all the chips. It's way low. Yeah, Lex. I'm not a big fan of them either. Honestly, my, my kids love them. Now, what for me? It's just too much. I think so too. There's too much going on. Yeah, I mean, give me a barbecue potato chip. Yes, I'm happy to have that. Yes, or I know this. Give me some Fritos. Oh right, which, I like a Frito. Which I haven't had a Frito in oh, 30 years. A Frito's good. Because it's got a real specific crunch to it. Yeah. It's got a kind of a bit of a weird taste. I very much like a plain salted tortilla chip. Oh, with no like guac nope. or salsa? Nothing nope. like that? No. I that's always lacking. Mm, I love that. Really? The really? Can- Tostitos makes a cantina chip, which is super thin. Mm-hmm. And everyone in my family mocks it. Yeah. But I don't care because I love it. Nice. Okay. Mm-hmm. How about the Tostitos lime? Is that delicious? Now you're talking. I mean, mean, that is a treat. That's big tier. That is a treat. Can you imagine what that stuff is that it's covered with? It can't be. It has to be all the stuff they're telling us. Of course it does. Is like rotting our bodies from the inside out. It's like heavy metals. Yes. Like you're dead. Exactly. Right? Exactly. We're just ingesting poison, except it tastes so good. It tastes so good. It really does. Okay, how about a kettle chip? I enjoy a kettle chip mm. for the crunch factor. Mm. Not the taste? Taste is also good. Yeah, yeah. But the crunch fact- factor is satisfying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mesquite kettle chips. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, anything in that barbecue family. I agree. I am really happy Me with too. it. Me too. Yeah, yeah. What's your feeling about um, chip and dip? I love chip and dip. Yeah, chip and dip. <sighs> okay, but I... So if I'm going to pick a chip yeah. for dip, for just a regular French onion dip, mm-hmm. I think I'm going to go with Ruffles. Oh, Ruffles. 
Yeah. Mm. Just a plain ruffle. I ruffles. like the ruffles, yeah. You know, Giant Eagle makes a nice ruffle. Do they? Oh, yeah. The Giant Eagle, like, you know, store-bought, store-brand. Okay. That's a good ruffle. Okay. Mm-hmm. What about a pretzel, though, in dip? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. How about a dark pretzel, like those burnt pretzels? I love those. Those are so good. What about good. the the new ish honey wheat ones from Utz? This, mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. I love those. I eat one of those too. <laughs> <laughs> That's delicious. Yeah, yeah. That's mm-hmm. absolutely delicious. Uh, but you know me. I, I mean, I have chips, not daily, but certainly weekly. I love a chip. We've always loved chips. I remember being a kid, and Snyder's had this thing at our local grocery store, Butler's. It was like a mom-and-pop store, which it used to be everywhere. Remember mom-and-pop stores? Yeah, Did you have no, a mom-and-pop store in your neighborhood? No, I didn't, oh. but I love them. Well, you'd open a bag of Snyder's. Sometimes there'd be a coupon in there for a free bag. <gasps> and one time I got like on a run, I had like nine free oh bags. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it was like, I was like a billionaire. <laughs> That's incredible. Uh-huh, yeah. You know, Snyder's of Berlin yeah. and Snyder's of Hanover. Two different. Yeah, they're two different, but they're like, they're right in the same part of Pennsylvania. Yeah, that's good. Those They Pennsylvania like produce potatoes. all that good stuff right next to each other. Mm-hmm. Top tier chip. You doing a wise? Remember you were like, remember that birthday you went like to like 900 stores? Trying to, to give find me a bag of wise. Wise chips. Mm. I mean, wise chips are delicious. They are delicious. I think I would still put the cantina corn. Uh, tortilla chip. Number one. Number one. Okay. Are you putting Wise number one? I'm putting Wise regular. Wise barbecued, not nearly mm. good at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Yeah. But Wise? Okay. And cantina chip? Bring it. Yeah. The Ride Home with John and Kathy, a production of Salem Media Group.